The views and conversations in the Net podcast are of our own perspective as fans and not necessarily representative of the Star Wars franchise or brand, Lucasfilm, Lucas Story Group, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. Any Star Wars licensed sounds or clips used are owned by the respective copyright owner and are merely shared for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Net podcast has no affiliation with the Star Wars franchise or brand, Lucasfilm, Lucas Story Group, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries, and is for entertainment, educational, and conversational purposes only with the Star Wars fandom. A long time ago, in a decade... I started my Star Wars fandom. Okay, an addiction. Way back in 1977, and an epic journey followed. I had tons of stuff as a kid, but somewhere along the way, the dark side vaporized all of it. There were also tons of things I never had a chance to get. Then, as I grew up to be a adult, I set out on a mission to rebuild and to add new things. Whether it's comic books, toys, collectibles, or anything that I see fun and interesting, if it's Star Wars, I'm all over it. It's a never-ending adventure across the galaxy online and in person that allows me to enjoy my fandom in a whole new light and meet new people and friends along the way. I'm Scotty D. Welcome to the Hollow. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Forest Moon of Endor to Yavin 4, welcome to another episode of the Hollow Net Podcast. I'm Scotty D with my co-partner across the galaxy. Brandon B, what's up guys? And uh, it's been a while since we've recorded a show, and that's because we've been kind of stewing in the back of our heads. No, who the hell am I kidding? We've been busy as heck, just living life, doing our thing. And uh, we are just excited as heck to be back with you today um, and be looking for a couple of episodes around the next week or so that are going to be coming to you with some great stuff. Uh, this one today uh, is quite exciting because it's our top five favorite scenes. Now, before we get into the top five, I want to remind everybody how you can get a hold of us here at the Hollow Net Podcast. A couple of different ways. The first and foremost way is to be on social media. Facebook, Twitter. Uh, where else are you at, Brandon? You're on some other things, too. I'm on Instagram. Instagram, Snapchat. too. Yeah, so you're on a lot of things. I'm only on Facebook and Twitter. I don't. I mean, I've got Snapchat, you know, for my kids and stuff, but I, I just don't, don't do anything on those things. So I, I'm kind of a, a, a voyeurist on Instagram and Snapchat, but I don't use them myself. Uh, so if you want to get a hold of us, get into the Facebook group, the Star Wars Holonet group. That link will be in the video description below. Uh, you can also go on over to Twitter and tweet to your heart's content on your own account over there and just somewhere in the tweet use the hashtag Net podcast when you do that we see it we respond to it accordingly and the last way to get in touch with us is to be part of us to be part of the crew on the spaceship navigating the galaxy and that's to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash holonet podcast it is that simple as low as a dollar a day uh, I'm not even going to try this. Brandon, you give your hook on this one. For less than a cup of Starbucks, you get a cup of Star Wars. See, that that's why I leave it up to the master. <laughs> because the last time I did it, I screwed it seven ways to Sunday, and it just didn't come out right. So, for less than a cup of Starbucks, you get some Star Wars. And 
it can start as low as $1. I mean, you can't get Starbucks for $1. You can't get a bottle of water for $1 these days. So for less than all of that, you get Brandon and I, and you show your support with us, and you get some perks and rewards along the way. It's a good time to become a patron. Patreon.com forward slash Hollownet podcast. But in the meantime, you want to know what our top five favorite scenes are because you've asked us and we thought about it. And, and, and we're going to go, it's going to be a freaking frack conversation. Just trust us on this one. It's going to be interesting because I've got my top five. Brandon's got his top five. And it was, I got to be honest, it was tough. This was I mean, really hard. It was, it was really hard. Yeah, because if you're trying to narrow down the top five favorite scenes, out of seven movies now, that's very, very, very tough. I'm just going to start with my number five. We're going to work from five to number one. So five being kind of the, the, the least and one being our, our most favorite scene in the Star Wars franchise. And we want to know your thoughts around these two. So when you're listening to this, you can jump on over to the Facebook group, jump over on Twitter, uh, Instagram, however you want to get a hold of us, uh, you know, you can talk to Brandon over on Instagram. I'm not over there, but we want to know your feedback on this. We want to know, do you think that we're spot on and it, or if you don't, and if you don't, frankly, I can care less. It's my opinion, <laughs> but th- these top five were very challenging for us because of our love for the entire franchise. And trying to narrow down these was was difficult. But my number five scene in my top favorites is the Falcon battle, Ray and Finn, The Force Awakens, The Escape from Nima Outpost. And, and I remember when the Falcon showed on the screen, during that entire scene, the hairs stood up. And still yeah. to this day, watching that scene makes my hair stand up that one almost made my list that was a, a definitely an honorable mention for me uh just barely missed but that's a, such a good scene like just how it's put together and the dynamic that it starts to create between ray and finn is fantastic like you really get to see how they're coming together and it, that i think that's the point where i really was behind ray and finn the first time i watched the film like i I liked them and everything, you know, it was really cool that Finn escaped and helped Poe and things like that. But when he stepped up and protected, not protected, Ray, that's not, Ray doesn't need protecting. What's your hurry, thief? What are you doing? Come on. Come on, baby. Let go of me. Come on, we gotta move. I know how to run without holding my hand. But, you know, worked with Ray and and was, you know, taking the risks, but still had that nervousness. Just it creates so much depth to him. And then you start to see how Ray doesn't need protecting and she really doesn't need somebody to hold her hand. It, it, it's a great scene. Yeah. I mean, when it started for me, when, you know, Finn's trying to find water and you're trying to figure out what is really happening in the scene. And. Then he sees Ray kind of getting bullied when the, you know the the troopers or the, the the locals are trying to steal BB-8 away, and that's the part where I was like, "Wow, th- th- something's really major going to happen here." And I so- I sat forward in my chair at the theater, and then 
you know, they're trying to find a ship, and they, they, they looked over at the the escape uh, ship, and I was like, that's kind of an interesting ship. And then that exploded. They turned. There's the Falcon. I was like, oh, my living God. You know, this is the moment that I wanted to see in this movie. And, well, and it, again, it shows the, the genius of John Williams when that Rebel fanfare hits, just at that point when it turns to the Falcon. It's just... The timing is impeccable. The use of music is amazing. Yeah, and and then the piloting skills of Ray. You really start to wonder what's up with this this lady. How is she so skilled to fly a ship that she's never flown before? I mean, think about that in our world. When you get a brand new vehicle, or you gotta go rent a large moving truck, or or you have to tow a a, a trailer behind. We're not that skilled at the very beginning. It takes time. And Ray jumps into the Falcon like it's you know been her best friend forever. And she says she's never flown it before, so you have to take it for, for word is what it is. And she flies this thing like an ace. Yeah. Well, and it, it explains in the Before the Awakening book, the one that was uh, a short story for Ray, Finn, and Poe, that she had been practicing on simulators for years that she rebuilt a simulator and had been practicing flying on things similar to uh the the system that the falcon had so i think that it's really cool that they're adding that backstory and the depth for people like us who want to have that extra depth and are wondering how did she learn to fly like that because it is a little bit improbable that she just knows how to fly like that but if you think about the fact that she has no anything on jakku she probably goes and she finds scrap she goes and pays uncar to get food and then she's not just sitting in that walker the rest of the day she's got to be doing something so to me it makes sense that she's doing things that are going to help her survive like learning how to speak uh wookie and learning how to fly and things like that you know she's a smart girl who's applying herself so that she can you know when for her her family comes back as she thinks they will that she'll be ready for whatever comes and it turns out you know things go a little bit differently than planned, but she's already ready for whatever is going to come because she spent the years preparing. Absolutely. And the, the one part that about it that still bothers me is that Ray and Finn are both humanoids, so they're susceptible to gravitational pull and the, the effects of gravity and whatnot. I mean, we see this throughout the Star Wars franchise, but when she's flying the Falcon and she's going in to the Imperial battleship and she's flying through there and she's cutting corners real fast. She pulls out. She goes through that intense loop when the uh, the cannon gets stuck in the forward position and then they pull out at the very bottom. I'm wondering how the hell did they survive the G-forces in that? You know, that because they, physics don't apply in Star Wars. But That's they it. do! <laughs> no, they apply when it's convenient to the story. They don't apply all the time. I mean, we've seen people jump out of spaceships with no helmets on. I mean, in Rebels, they jumped out of a spaceship with no helmets on and were fine because they were in the thin atmosphere. Like, it, it's Star Wars. Physics don't apply. Simple okay. as that. Well, you know what? I'll just have to accept that, right? Because, I mean, it's on the screen, but that's the one part of that whole scene. I was like, well, that's... That's badass. I mean, when she pulls that thing around in the loop and then the, and tucks the the butt end of the Falcon down and just kicks in the, the thrusters, I was like, my God, that's some serious piloting right there. 
it reminds you a little bit of uh, hmm, Anakin Skywalker yeah. in the Phantom Menace. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. A lot of that. So, well, I mean, that that was, you know, I, I had to think, you know, out of all of the, the, the movies, that was the one that, you know, when you and I were first talking about and planning this show, I was like, wow, what's one of the scenes that I, I find amazing? And that's the, I got to be honest, that's the first one that popped in my mind. And I just jotted it down real fast and, you know, on, on a notepad. And so that that was, to me, the the pinnacle point when it made us all sit forward in our chairs at the theaters when we seen The Force Awakens. It wasn't when, you know, uh, Kylo Ren walks off the, the ship. You know, it, it wasn't the, you know, uh, uh, Finn, you know, telling BB-8 to leave. None of that really got me like the wow factor in that movie at the very beginning. I was like, okay, it's a movie. It's good. I'm liking it. I like I, I like the darkness. I like to see where they're going with this. And then, boom, this whole scene comes up, and I was amazed. So that's my number five. What's your number five? My number five is a story you won't hear from the Jedi. The story of Darth Plagueis the Wise. I love this opera scene with Darth Pla- where they talk about Darth Plagueis. I think it adds so much depth to the story of Palpatine and Anakin and their interaction. Uh, I mean, you have Anakin who probably was created. It's implied that he was created by Plagueis or Palpatine through the Force. It adds... uh, I I can't put into words just how much depth it adds to the story. So you still fall into the the camp that, uh, you know, Anakin is immaculately conceived? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it makes the most sense. Uh, I don't see any reason why Shmi would try to hide it from Qui-Gon that, you know, she had a father. I think it makes more sense for the story that he was a virgin birth. And then when you get to the scene with Darth Plagueis, it makes it even better because Palpatine is so manipulative. It's like it shows his capabilities and it makes him such a strong villain because you finally start to realize he's hiding in plain sight like he's literally right there and this is kind of where he's peeking around the curtain going are you ready to see the rest of the show to anakin and it just makes you makes you wonder about what really happened and i think that's important to bring into question everything that's happened before and this scene does that i uh, see it i still really think Shmi, i still think Shmi got a hook up at the uh, moss Eisley's cantina after a couple of glasses of whatever and that's exactly how uh, Anakin came to be. That's my that's my but take on this. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to the story, though. I mean, Shmi is supposed to be a virgin birth because she's the the image of purity and pure goodness, you know, and that has rubbed off on Anakin, and he spends the rest of his life trying to find that. You know, she was a slave in the worst planet in the galaxy, and yet she was nothing but pure good and kindness and love unconditional love for anakin you know i wrote an article on it recently she is the unconditional love that anakin never has everything else is a transactional love that he has even with padme it's a transactional love they give each other what they they take from each other what they need they don't give to each other what the other person needs and he spends the rest of his life trying to find that pure love again and he never does until luke see i and that's what saves him See, I, I would love see. That's a backstory that I like to to see is pre Anakin, Shmi, and and what has happened prior to, you know, the Phantom Menace. 
because there's a story there, you know, that, that could be easily told in a book. I mean, I don't really care. I mean, yeah. maybe this wouldn't hold so much as a live action movie, but it can seriously hold itself in a novel. Even a short novel would be a fantastic canonical storyline to tie that up because while, you know, Star Wars in and of itself is a Skywalker opera, I would love to know the backstory pre Anakin. You know, I, I've said it before. I think that Yoda st should still get a backstory. And pre Anakin would be a great story to tell in, in Darth Plagueis. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's in there. You know, who knows? Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely could be. There's a lot of possibilities of what you could do with it. But I, I like the mystery of it because it allows you to kind of see it through your own light. Like, you and I have completely different images of what happened before Anakin, and that helps us understand Star Wars. I mean, it would be way, fantastic so. if Shmi was married, um, was married to a, a, a Force-wielding or, or a Jedi or, or even a Sith. It doesn't matter. And... You know, somewhere along the way, the Empire came in, and there was, you know, there was a battle or slaughter or killing. It, there's, there's so much that could be told or should be told, and the directions that it could go, that it's unbelievable. But I agree. I mean, that that's an interesting, you know, scene as far as the woulda, coulda, shouldas. You know, it leaves yeah. you really thinking, what happened there? You know, where is? the the father of Anakin is there a, is there a father of Anakin or is it just an immaculate conception and that would be interesting because if you know you know George Lucas during the the, the stand-ups of, of, of where he was going with his research in doing Star Wars he took a lot of religion into consideration when he was doing the story yeah absolutely and I mean as a Christian myself, you know, I look at it through that lens and I'm not trying to push it on anybody, but just looking at pure, purely the story aspect of the birth of Christ, the one person in the whole world who was pure was chosen to carry the God child in her and had the virgin birth and he was able to save the galaxy or the, the world or whatever. So it's the same thing with Anakin. It's the same idea. And that's a, that's a theme, that's a motif that's throughout a lot of religious uh, text, if you look at it, is a virgin birth as a pure thing that comes to lead to salvation or lead to things being the way that they are eventually meant to be. And that's why I think it adds so much. And especially if it was a Darksider who created it, created Anakin within the womb of this pure woman, then it just it brings to mind all the emotions that Anakin has and how they're probably going to be heightened. Because you had somebody who's pure evil and pure good, he has all of that within him. Right, and that you know? would make sense. I would, I would more so lean to what you're saying from the dark side, because we even see that in Luke. You know, Luke struggled with that pull of the the, the light and the dark. Leia, not so much, but Leia was kind of kept in Alderaan in, in a different um, world, in a different type of uh, of upbringing than Luke. Luke struggled with dark and light because of the, you know, depressed lifestyle that he had on Tatooine. Yeah, but, and then when you get to the scene at the end of Return of the Jedi, which we'll touch on later, but he throws that lightsaber away, and he says, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. He's loving his father purely without any 
obligation without any need for transaction he's loving his father anakin skywalker and anakin hasn't had that since the day he walked away from shimmy on tatooine absolutely and so anyways we could go on that forever mm. but uh i i just love the darth plague is the wise i can watch just that scene and every time i notice something else that's different and exciting about it uh and i think it just makes palpatine the best villain in cinematic history i think it's just fantastic <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what's your number four? My number four, uh, Shroot Emwe, uh, Rogue One, Stormtrooper battle and beach scene sacrifice uh, in the Battle of Scarif. That is my number four also, the Battle of Scarif in Rogue One. How about that? But s- specifically, Shroot Emwe. Uh, he, out of all of the characters, you know, it, it's crazy because he's, kind of, he's, he's an important character, but, but kind of not. But there's something about the um, the innocence and the purity that Emwe, uh, Emwe's character is uh, in Rogue One. And maybe because he's, he's uh, attracted to the Force, maybe because he's um, a protector of the wills, uh, you know, who, who knows? But just Shirut Emwe in Rogue One, specifically the Stormtrooper battle where he's using his staff and and battling and then they come and they put the, the hood over his head he goes are you kidding me and it, you know, that's yes. the most comical part of the movie and then it transcribes all the way through the movie to the beach scene and his sacrifice in the Battle of Scarif you know he, I, I matter of fact I just watched that movie yesterday just so I can take in that one scene again and it's so mystical and magical and his partner sitting there begging him not to do it. And then he just, he, he sacrifices himself for the connection. Yeah. And one thing I lo- the Battle of Scarif is my, is my number four. Because I like the fact, first of all, it's visually stunning. But what really makes it great is the storytelling. Because every member of the, the Rogue One team gets a death that matters. You know, Chirrut dies to... Uh, turn the master switch. Uh, Jin and Cassian die to get the plans out, and uh, Bodhi dies to get the message out. So I was thinking about Baze, and I realized Baze dies going after Chirrut, which is important because it's showing that the light side of the Force is reestablishing itself in the galaxy, in the larger context of the galaxy. So, you know, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, it's nothing but pure darkness, except for the little little bit of light we have with Luke and Leia being hidden away. And the sparks stay there with Kanan and Ezra. But I think when Baze goes out and just a normal, non-force-wielding individual goes out and dies for those that he loves, that is establishing the light side of the Force in the larger context of the galaxy that eventually leads to Luke. Well, so I, I think it's, so, it's just so cool that, you know... we. It's always said, you know, that Star Wars is great because it's a story about how anybody can can, you know, come off the farm and go to do great things, which, yes, you know, I see that in Luke. But I also see he had the certain gifts and talents. Baze is a nobody. I mean, he's on a backwater planet of Jeddah that pretty much everybody else has forgotten about except for the Empire when it becomes useful to them. And he goes out and he dies just to be able to show his friend how much he loves him. And it's that love that eventually leads to Luke, again, throwing away his lightsaber. Well, I, I'm with you. I mean, th- that scene where um, Emily's out there pressing the button, he, 
you know, it explodes. He's on the ground. Bays goes out there, you know, in, in, in assistance to his friend, realizes what's going on, and almost in vindication to say, I'm not going to let my friend lie here on the sand for nothing. I'm going to go out and, and go out in a blaze of glory. You can kind of see it in his eyes. And, you know, we, we all know this is scripted, but, you know, it, it, the way that it's produced and directed, it, you, it's, it's believable. You know, oh, you, yeah. You, you, it's like you could put this into a real battle and you can picture one friend to another trying to vindicate his friend's death. And he goes up and he's he's just blasting troopers and he gets hit a couple of times and he doesn't give up. He's almost like the Terminator at that point. He says, you want to take me? Come get me. The mindset is, is um, it's almost well, mystifying. Yeah, and... If you look at the scene, you know, he goes out shooting, trying to protect Chirrut to try to keep him alive. But eventually when Chirrut tells him, you know, look to the force and you'll find me mm. right before that or right after that, excuse me, right after that, he dies looking at a grenade right. that he knows is going to mm. blow up and kill him. The base from earlier in the movie would have tried to crawl over to that grenade and throw it farther away. Yeah. But he's come to accept that there's something bigger in play. And I, I love that because it adds... The whole the whole battle of Scarif adds so much to Rogue One, or excuse me, to A New Hope, because not just the beginning scene with Leia and Vader and all that, where they're running away from the plans. When you get to trying to get the plans back to the rebellion and destroying the Death Star, there's so much more urgency to it and so much more weight behind it because these people have sacrificed themselves. Oh yeah, and, and... in such a beautiful way that it adds so much weight to the trench run and everything. And then when Luke hits that, it's like the hope that Jin and Cassian and Baze and Chirrut and all of them were trying to share, the, the hope that they were trying to convey to the galaxy is finally coming to fruition. Yeah, and so many people, they get locked onto the primary characters in a movie. You know, Jin is, Jin is a, a given. You know, all of everybody loves Jin in this movie. You know, and, and so to me... I took a step back when I was watching this movie going, what's deeper in this story? You know, you know, sure, the, the, the desire from Jen to Galen to go and find the, the plans to vindicate her father uh, and, and, and clear his name, um, that, that's important to the story. But this, that, that whole battle of Scarif and Shirut Imwe, that's where my, my, my attention was. So, what's your number four? That was my number four, the Battle of Scarif. Oh, that's right. Four, <laughs> so, yeah. All we right. We landed at the same one. So, what's your number three? My number three, I think, is going to be, a, a, oh boy, predictable, right? But it's the duel of the fates, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth Maul fight in uh, The Phantom Menace. That's a good one. I love that one. That one almost made my list, too. It almost it, made my list. It was actually on my list, and it got booted off for a couple other ones. And, and again, I think it went hand-in-hand hand with, like you said, the Bays and Chirrut, uh, the, um, the, that love for each other and the, 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 the brotherhood that they have. You could feel that within Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. You know, with that fight, and, and they're 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 going through the hallways, and they get locked between the, the the force fields as they're going out to the to the platforms, and then Qui Gon really settles into the force and goes into his his uh, meditation. Just the whole scene, I, I took it in for more than I'm sure that a lot of people took it for. Oh, the, the the cool swings of the lightsabers. Okay, 
that gets old real fast. Look at the deeper, yeah. the deeper conversation that's not being said in that scene and what it's about. And then what? the whole mystical part of Darth Maul falling, and we think that he's gone. And then later on, many years later, we get him alive in uh, in Rebels. My problem with that, first of all, I love that Maul came back. So I'm not disparaging that because I love the things with him in Rebels and Clone Wars. My don't, one don't forget, he also, do he, Maul, Maul still had his canonical comic book prior to Disney. And that was that... right. Darth Maul, the son of Dathomir. Right, but I, what I was... I don't think... I think that a little bit of the weight from that battle got taken away by bringing him back to life. First of all, I don't think he should have died, and I think pretty much everybody agrees that he should have been a villain at least through episode two and maybe episode three as well. And while I love the scene, because it's a, it's so much fun, and of course, you know, Ray Park and all of them do an amazing job with the duel, I do feel like a little bit of weight got taken away from it for me with Maul coming back. And then also, the death of Qui-Gon, I love Qui-Gon so much, and I want his death to matter more to me. You know, you had the, the ruining on the back of the CD where it had Qui-Gon's noble end, that kind of ruined it a little bit. But for me, I think I've told this story before, but I had episode one spoiled for me, scene for scene. So I knew going in that he was going to die, and I didn't like knowing that he was going to die because I feel like his death should have had more of an impact on me. But it was kind of like, okay, Qui-Gon's dead, now Obi-Wan can take over. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It to, I wanted to feel that conflict more and feel that conflict within Obi-Wan more, and I just don't think we had the time to do that. Well, I, I, I felt like Qui-Gon and Maul should have lasted through the second episode. Should. But I realized that the story wasn't about them. The story was all about Anakin. So they had to get back to the point where the focus was on Anakin, not on Qui-Gon and Maul. So that's why I don't have a problem with the fact that they were gone or, or killed off in the first movie. But I, I agree with you. I mean, they, they have such weight to their characters that it's almost like they got injustice from getting oust so yeah. early in the film it's like maybe let them last further on in the film you know don't well, just for just for for shits and giggles a little thought experiment what if qui-gon and maul survive qui-gon starts to train anakin and obi-wan and him are still you know buddy buddy and we get to the battle of geonosis and instead of just obi-wan dooku and Anakin, you have Obi-Wan, Anakin, Qui-Gon, Dooku, and Maul. And somehow Maul kills Qui-Gon because Obi-Wan didn't do his job, whatever he was going to do. He somehow, not intentionally, but Anakin views it as intentionally, allows Maul to kill Qui-Gon. And Obi-Wan then takes over the training there. The resentment that Anakin would have towards Obi-Wan, it would... It would be a very different set of prequel movies, but it would be kind of interesting to see, I think. I agree. I agree. I mean, and that's where sometimes you look at these movies and you realize they've got a short span of time by which to tell a story. And yeah. I think George Lucas knew going into this that he had three story, three movies to tell this story of the upbringing of Anakin to the, uh, um, the rise of Vader. So... I, I think that that's why some areas of the prequels felt rushed. Almost like when you get a miniseries comic book and you know that they have to tell the story in five books because they've already told in 
precursors that this is going to be a five book miniseries. Well, you know from start to finish this is going to be you know something's going to feel rushed because at the very end they're going to be like, ah, we got to wrap it up. Let's go. And yeah, I felt I, that I, way in the my... Leia comic book. I felt that way in in some of the Han Solo books. You know, it's just sometimes when you have a limited amount of time to tell a story because your book ended up against uh, A New Hope, you know, I think that it causes you to have to do some in- unconventional things uh, to your storyline. Yeah, and I mean, that's my major critique of the prequels. You know, I love I love the prequels. Uh, I love the prequels just as much as I do the original trilogy. But that, that is the one thing I think they, that George was trying to tell too big of a story for three movies. I think if you had either a more concise story or four to five movies to tell it in, you've got a completely different situation. So, um, I could, I could go on about the prequels forever. So we'll just move on. Uh, What's your number number three? three. My number three is the, I love you. I know scene from the empire strikes. Oh, hi. Yeah. I love you. I know. Part of it is because I'm a hopeless romantic, but if you really look at it, it's a great scene. I mean, the tension is so high and, the thing is, it could have been it could have been very cheesy if you didn't do it right. It could have been one of the it, it could have been a meme for the rest of our lives if you didn't do it right. But everything just works. The lighting works, the camera angles work, the look in the actor's eyes. You really you feel the pain in Leia and you know that Han is trying to be strong. And when Chewbacca roars, I mean I've watched Empire Strikes Back hundreds of times. And when Chewbacca roars, it's like the shattering of everything you think you know. It's just gone. You know, the good guys don't always win. And even love has to go through trials and tribulations to to come to fruition. And I just love, I think everything works. I think it absolutely works, which is a, a feat by Kirshner. Because like I said, it, it could have been cheesy. It could have been, oh, look at this dark lighting. And oh, look at, you know, oh, they love each other. You know, we knew this was coming. Because you know it's coming the whole movie. You know eventually it's going to come. But you have Han trying to tell Leia that he loves her, but not knowing how because he's never felt this way about somebody before. You have Leia allowing herself to be vulnerable, which we have never seen before, mind you. I mean, the planet of Alderaan blew up and we see her, you know, sad, but she's the one that goes on to comfort Luke and she's the one who is leading the rebels on onto destroying the Death Star, you know? She has to be strong all the time and now she is she just breaks. And I think that that is just so cool. I like the fact that they've got jewelry with it on now. Like you can get wedding rings with I love you and I know on it. You can get necklaces and bracelets and all that stuff. I think that that's really cool. But the, the scene itself, the one thing that I find most amazing about that scene is many people don't know, but the I know part was Harrison Ford's idea. Yeah. Yeah, it was originally I love you, I love you too, or something yes. even worse like that. But again, that goes back to being cheesy. It could have been super cheesy, and it's not. Yep, yep. So, I mean, I'll give you it. It wasn't kind of a standout scene for me. It's notoriously one of the most famous scenes in the entire franchise because yeah. I mean it's used in every way shape and form all over the place so I'll give you that I just I can't grasp onto it being a favorite scene so I don't know I'll, I'll, I'll just give it to you in this one so. <laughs> what's your number three uh, we already did my number three uh, oh, we're, at, we're on number two number two uh, see, this was tough 
because my number two and my number one, I bounced back and forth several times before I just said, look, I just have to go with this. So my number two scene is Vader's sacrifice for Luke in Return of the Jedi. Knew that was coming. Um, it's the pinnacle example of a parental love for a child that no matter what they're going through, no matter what you're going through, you will go to the ends of the earth for your child. And Anakin reaches into his heart and realizes as he's talking to Palpatine and he's talking to Luke in that whole scene at the throne and something clicks on him that I can't I can't do that anymore. I have to support my son no matter what. If that even includes up into and uh, involving my own death. So that is it's just it's a beautiful scene. It's sad because he dies, but sat, giving himself his, his ultimate sacrifice to his son so that his son lives that is that's what made this the pinnacle moment for me well yeah and like we talked about earlier it's for me it's even a better scene when you think about the fact that he spent 40 years almost looking for uh the unconditional love that he had from his mom from his mother and he's never able to discover that love until he sees luke throw away his lightsaber and then he not only is able to see that love, but he knows he can give that love to someone else. And I think that adds so much more. That's actually, spoiler alert, that's my number one. It's the whole <laughs> Battle of Endor, Return of the Jedi. It's always been my favorite scene. Because I think at any point in your life, you can relate to one of the characters in there. You know, you can relate to Luke trying to be good. You can relate to Vader if you're having some internal conflicts, you know, and you're going through a tough time. The fact that Vader does stand up for himself and finally sheds the mask of Vader is something inspiring. Um, I think it's, I think it just is a scene that touches on the human experience in a way nothing else, for me, cinematically ever has. I'm with you. Now, the one part of that scene that I don't like is in the, the, the digital remakes is where they replaced old Anakin with young Anakin as the Force ghost. I still, to this day, don't like that. Because if that's the case, then you've got to take Obi-Wan back to McGregor. Here's my headcanon, is that you, when you become a Force ghost, you go back to the best version of yourself. Whatever the best version of yourself in the real world was, that's what you go back to. The best version of Yoda and Obi-Wan or when they realized the people that they were in the Clone Wars was not who Jedi are supposed to be. And the people who supported Luke are the people that they are supposed to be. And Anakin was his best self when he was trying to help the galaxy and be good, which is Anakin at the beginning of Attack of the Clones. You know, it's, I mean, if you're purely looking at it, it would be young, you know, nine-year-old Anakin that we meet at the beginning of uh, The Phantom Menace. That's his purest form. But... Trying to retcon it, you know, that's that's how I look at it. I think it adds a lot for generations that are coming up, you know, to see Hayden Christensen as Vader and that 
line just goes all the way through the end of Return of the Jedi. But I can also understand the other it's side. It's just of the confusing. Argument. You know, to me, when I seen the digital remakes, I was like, "What? What?" Well, yeah, but it's going to be confusing for you know kids these days if you have Sebastian Shaw on there because you don't get as good of a look at him with uh when they take the mask off of vader because he's all scarred up and his the bottom of his face is covered and stuff so i i think it's like a six one half dozen the other kind of situation i i could take it or leave it i really don't care no nah, i'm with you i'm with you so what's your number so, two my number two this one's going to be a shocker i'm sure is ray catching the lightsaber in the force of awakens uh really part of this yes i lo- i absolutely love the scene it takes a lot to get me emotionally stirred up i'm not you know I had goosebumps when that happened for the first five or six times I saw the movie. And even now, it's a scene that I stop. Whatever I'm doing, I stop and I watch her catch that lightsaber. Part of it's that nostalgia of how I felt the first time. But I think this scene, it's where Rey establishes that she's accepting her place in the galaxy. So we have most of the film, she's trying to run away and get back to Jakku and what she knows and what she understands. And now she's she's stepping her game up and not because of political reasons or wanting power it's because of relationships she accepts her fate because of the relationship she has with han and finn and now she's seen han die she doesn't know what's happened to finn and she knows something has to be done before more people she cares about or people that other people care about are lost and she does it you know she and i'm not talking the whole duel and everything like that i think that part's great but just that one scene where she catches the lightsaber and then you have the burning homestead that hits and it reminds you of luke and you know talking about the hero's journey you have the the crossing the threshold moment where the hero accepts who they are and that burning homestead moment is kind of part of that for luke and now it's part of that for ray this is ray's crossing the threshold moment she takes up excalibur and is off to fight dragons and demons you know and it's all because of the relationship she has. And I think that's what makes The Force Awakens such a strong film. For everybody who critiques it, yes, it does have a lot of links to A New Hope. And there's a lot of nostalgia to it and stuff like that. And that bothers some people. I personally love it. But I think what's great is the whole film is about relationships. About broken relationships. About relationships being built. About finding trust. And I think that's what makes Star Wars strong. When it is about the characters and the people and how they interact with each other. And I'm excited to see now what the relationship between Ray and Kylo is going to be, because it'll be there's so many ways that they could go with it with uh, with the last Jedi. But, yeah, the scene just really stands out to me because it's her finally stepping up and accepting that she needs to be there for the people who are there for her and not just hope and dream and wish for something that may never most likely is never going to happen on Jakku. You know, I love the interview that I seen recently. As a matter of fact, I seen it this this past week um, of Mark Hamill, and he was describing when he was reading the script for the very first time, and he got to that page, and there's a descriptive you know element to reading this versus what we see on the screen, and it was more like, you know, the the lightsabers in the snow, it starts to shake, and the, you know, because we know that somebody's over there pulling it, and then the the camera pans over and it's Ray and he was like what it's not me I'm supposed (laughs) to pick it up it's my action and um, so I thought that was a little bit comical Uh, if you don't know the interview I'm talking about just search the interwebs 
Look on YouTube. You'll find it. And and that scene becomes even more powerful. I just thought of this. Uh, uh, I was listening. But while you were talking, I was also thinking. Sure you yeah. were. Yeah, I was. No, I was. I promise. Um, he always but... says that. He always says that. You, you're you listening to this. You make your own critique. You think he was listening? Comment below. <laughs> All right. But no, seriously. Uh, at the end of Return of the Jedi, Luke throws away his lightsaber to the ground. And that's him, you know, accepting the type of relationship that he has to have. And then the next time we see a Jedi pick up a lightsaber is Rey, presumably some sort of Jedi figure, catching the lightsaber. Right. It's going in different directions, you know? That's that's an interesting uh, motif. I wonder if they'll touch on it all when uh, when we get to The Last Jedi. I I have thoughts on uh, on that, but that's for another another book on another time. Uh, exactly. So we're down to my number one. We already know what your number one is. Yours is the uh, the Vader sacrifice in the, the the Battle of Endor. My number one is again when, when when you hear my number one in a second, you'll understand why I was in conflict with my number one and, and my number two. My number one choice of my favorite scene is Yoda's training with Luke on Dagobah. Oh yeah, that's good because it it, it starts off quirky and a little campy and then it gets into this world where Yoda's serious again. He's almost comes out of this realization that you know, he can't be in hiding anymore. He has to come out of this exile that he's been in uh, since Order 66 and train somebody who is you know, supposed to be the next chosen one. And so that to me was powerful the whole training element of you know we can all relate to the struggles that we have day to day going i can't do it i i I, just too hard you know kids you know you're you're a teacher you know brandon so you know this you know kids say i can't do it it's too hard or whatever you know when we as adults we have the same you know uh, achilles heels that we fall back on because of of bad uh, 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 you know, just bad decisions or bad thoughts that we have in our head that we 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 question our own abilities, and you know, Yoda takes Luke and every bit of his um, you know inability to believe in himself, and and builds him back up to realize it doesn't matter if you're big or small, uh, strong, uh, with muscles or a frail frame, it doesn't matter. You can accomplish anything you put your mind to, but you have to believe in yourself. And that's the part that I was like, wow, you know, that, that was heavy for me. Not so much as a kid. As a kid, I was like, wow, this is really cool. But as I became an adult, the scene, you know, kind of transformed to mean something different to me. Yeah, and I think that's what makes any scene in Star Wars great. And I think that all of our scenes that we've mentioned on here have that aspect of it grows with you. As you get older and as you have different life experiences, the scene changes for you. You know, I fully expect the, the Ray scene catching the lightsaber to be different from me for me, you know, 10 years down the road because my life experience will be different. And I think that's what makes uh, a great Star Wars uh, film or so. scene or anything. <laughs> so I, we, we hope you like the top five. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time, you know, kind of going through the, you know, the entire saga uh, and picking out our top five. And, and we love to, you know, know yours as well. You know, comment in the... Uh, uh, the the thread uh, comments uh, on the Hollow Net uh, Facebook group. You can uh, you know 
if you're a patron, definitely get into the patron conversations and, and, uh, and, and have a great conversation in there as well. Either way, it doesn't matter what your top five scenes are uh, or if they're same with mine or the same with Brandon's or they cross parallel in some way, shape, or form. It's the very fact that we can all take scenes like you've heard today where you can you can compare and contrast with other Star Wars friends and you can find that commonality to go, wow, you're... You're spot on with that, or let me give you my thoughts around that, and it just invokes that conversation that we all love, and that's our fandom for Star Wars. It's amazing. There's never been a better time to be a Star Wars fan than now. There's so many generations of people that are spanning uh, the Star Wars franchise that you can talk with, you know, four-year-olds all the way up to, you know, 50-year-olds and above that love this franchise. And I know people that are in their 70s that love Star Wars. My dad, one of them. You know, <laughs> every time we talk, the first, last thing he tells me is, may the force be with you. And it's just, it's something that Star Wars touches everybody. It's for Star everybody. Wars is forever. It's forever. Star Wars is forever, for it, sure. It will, it, will, it will outlive generations and generations and generations and generations to come. And I'm just happy to be part of it. I really am. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. You know, Drop us a tweet, hashtag Holonet Podcast. Come on over to the Holonet Facebook group and, and join over there. And uh, by all means, if, uh, if you love the concept of getting uh, a cup of Star Wars for less than a cup of coffee, then become a patron. Help support the show. Help it keep going. Uh, a bulk of what we do and the ability to keep the show going comes from crowdfunding. So go on over to patreon.com forward slash Holonet podcast and uh, become a patron today. And all of these will be in the show notes below. So you don't have to go back and rewind and listen again. And uh, they're all just in the show notes below for your, your ease of use. So thanks for listening to the, uh, the to the show today. We, uh, we are excited to, uh, to be here with you every time that we get a chance to uh, record a show. And if you've got a show topic that you want to maybe suggest, let us know. We'd love to hear from you as well. Until the next show, may the force be with you. Bye-bye. The views and conversations in the Net podcast are of our own perspective as fans and not necessarily representative of the Star Wars franchise or brand, Lucasfilm, Lucas Story Group, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. Any Star Wars licensed sounds or clips used are owned by the respective copyright owner and are merely shared for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Net podcast has no affiliation with the Star Wars franchise or brand, Lucasfilm, Lucas Story Group, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries, and is for entertainment, educational, and conversational purposes only with the Star Wars fandom. We thank you for listening to the Net podcast. And until the next episode, may the Force be with you.